Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. This is Chapter 2 on Vasily Kandinsky, his presence at and influence upon the Bauhaus, and Part 7 in our look at the early expressionist phase of the famous Weimar Design School. If you are new to the podcast or would like more historical context, we provide some in earlier episodes. Have you ever had a great idea? Don't think too much about the word great or how your notion of it might compare to that of others. Don't limit what this great idea might have been about. Think instead about the moment, the very instant it occurred to you. Many people have had this experience in which a thought comes to them full-formed and in a flash. You understand the idea thoroughly, completely, and immediately, to the extent it sometimes feels like it could not possibly have come from within you, but from some external source, capable of of presenting all of this impressive detail to your mind's eye. You scramble to your desk to write or draw. You reach or rush out for your instrument, or simply find someone to tell, because you know how memories of instants such as these have something of a dreamlike quality to them. The details will grow foggier with every minute that widens the gulf between the present and your moment of inspiration. With every strike of the hands of the clock, the pressure to fulfill the creative impetus that just hit you increases. Sometimes the urge comes before you have started anything. Sometimes it comes in medias race, in the middle of a most mundane activity. And when, and if, and once you are able to produce some material results from this, even if they are just notes or sketches, taking stock of the lengthy physical embodiment of the idea against what flourished in your mind within a microsecond astounds you. If we had a better understanding of this synthesis of technical and spiritual dynamics through inspiration, and were able to systematize it in a method, what might the results be? The prudent answer is the process might be quite like biting into a fruit of knowledge. Its method, a double-edged sword. Just as a child that dances purely for the fun of it could further that creativity by taking a dance class, there are risks entailed in this promise applying the lens of how the conscious instructing of creative production works to the inspiration's what that fell into or sprung out of your head is needed to move creativity beyond its primal state of childlike innocence. But it will take determination, courage, skill, and even a touch of stubborn naivete to survive an education or profession with creativity intact. 
because at the point of enrollment or profit, one runs the risk of compromising everything. The ability to pass this gauntlet is what separates the genius that history acknowledges from the sort of primal genius that Buckminster Fuller said lives within us all as children. Instruction can numb creativity by imposing ill-fitting standards, or, more insidiously, by provoking an indelible self-awareness that cuts one off from being receptive to the signaling that powers our imaginations. It is also possible that, as happened to Johannes Itten, ideas that find enduring influence decades hence present themselves in such a loony package to the people of their time that they run screaming or just quietly sideline the bearer of creativity. The legacy of the Bauhaus straddles this ambivalent influence of education. It plunged headlong into the advanced practice of creativity, but also furthered efforts to comprehend creativity itself. These efforts are analogous to Clayton Christensen's current attempts to understand disruptive as opposed to sustaining innovation. If a large, successful tech company had a Department of Innovation Studies, as some do, does this lead to more universe-denting products, or does it slay the golden goose by fossilizing processes of prior inspiration? The evidence appears to point to it doing both in unexpected ways, but ignoring or marginalizing method seems to us to be the cop-out either way. The Bauhaus leaves us a coin with both of these sides creative fertility, and sterility, firmly stamped out. As our podcast is still examining the school's early foundations, this episode is about Kandinsky on this matter of fulfilling inspiration. As was also true of his Weimar and Dessau colleagues, he was convinced that humanity needed such study or that it was desperately starving from a lack of it. He believed that in his time, inspired individuals were either too few and far between, or that their ideas were not often enough dispersed from the individual into the broader world. In 1911, a decade before his workshops at the Bauhaus attempted to create art that would feed the multitudes, he wrote a book attempting to address the issue. The analysis of this process going from inspiration to realization is how Kandinsky begins Über das Geistige in der Kunst, insbesondere in der Malerei, concerning the spiritual in art, especially in painting. It is important to note that the words Geist and Geistig commonly translated as spirit and spiritual, or alternately as mind and mental, carry weighty connotations in German that 
are never completely present in English. Geist is a cognate of the English ghost. Sometimes it stands for a phantom-like entity such as der Erdegeist, the earth spirit that Goethe's Faust conjures up in the opening act of the play. But in the case of Kandinsky, as with many other writings, including Marx's discussion of the money commodity in Das Kapital, Geistige is used much more broadly, and therefore far less religiously, than how the term spiritual is used in English. While an ardent and purposeful theism is present throughout Kandinsky's written, and some argue painted, works, the broader connotations of Geist apply here to more generally mean anything that is not physical. Inspiration passes through an individualized, non-physical, and mental place into a creative result that lives within the shared material world. On the mental and inspirational side, this series of events deals with the spiritual, or Geistige in art. The quotes from the book that we have selected come from its first English-language edition, published in 1914, soon after the German original. It was translated by Michael T. H. Sadler, an art collector, author, and close associate of Kandinsky's who helped popularize the artist's startlingly abstract work in the UK. Sadler also contributes an illuminating introduction, opining on Kandinsky's place in an art world that was as vertiginous, dynamic, disconcerting, and enthralling to the public as consumer electronics are today. Sadler claims that what the world called modern painting at the time had two great representatives, Cezanne and Gauguin. Cezanne and his followers, which included Picasso, produced art that emphasized technique and visual, syntactic innovation. Gauguin and his offspring, among them Matisse, set down a more spiritual, semantic path to art. While Cezanne is still regarded as the father of Cubism and as a gatekeeper for the subsequent explosion of turn-of-the-century vanguards, Gauguin's star has waned somewhat, flickering occasionally as a cautionary tale of imperialist patriarchal politics spreading syphilis. But this comes at a loss to us. Gauguin was once best known for scrawling on the gilded corner of an enormous mural-sized painting the questions, Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Kandinsky was, in several ways, following what Gauguin's work presented. His view is a historically inclined perspective on the spiritual path of humanity, a telos of the soul, and thus a very socially oriented concern for our development, or lack thereof. If the syntactic painters more or less generally subscribed to the aestheticist slogan of art for art's sake, a position 
that Kandinsky called vain squandering of artistic power. He presents two rival definitions for what an artist should properly do. Quoting the composer and critic Robert Schumann, Kandinsky offers that the message of the competent artist is to send light into the darkness of men's hearts. But not content to dwell on one side of what should be an argument, both Kandinsky and his translator emphasize the importance of provocation and disputation, the last of which is sorely lacking in contemporary discourses on art and architecture. The painter quotes his anarchist countryman Tolstoy's claim to the effect that an artist is a man who can draw and paint everything, casting the semantic and the syntactic into sharp relief. These two definitions, Schumann's and Tolstoy's, follow a passage where Kandinsky laments how in museums where each picture is a whole lifetime in prison, a whole lifetime of fears, doubts, hopes, and joys, the public swans by uttering clever quips suggested by the booklets they are sold, and then returning promptly to their daily lives, unchanged, untouched, and untransformed. This is very close to the sentiment against museums that we saw the Arbeitsrat für Kunst demand in episode 11. Nothing could change unless everyday life was. And so Kandinsky's nigh-shamanic side, which yearned to shake his culture into a newfound shape, found solid and common cause with the Bauhaus's social aims. While the interest of art's technical specialists was, and remains, a purely visual one, this more philosophical, spiritual approach to painting is what Kandinsky's translator felt was a resurgent force in the art world. He thought of Kandinsky as quite possibly the best man to perform a synthesis of the semantic and syntactic in painting, which would have placed him in a singularly powerful position, even had he written nothing on the subject. Part and parcel of this interest in the social and transformative potential of art was a desire, at least in the case of Kandinsky and Sadler, to understand history. Among the very few illustrations in the earliest printings of Kandinsky's book is a photo of the Byzantine mosaic of Justinian and Theodora in Ravenna, Italy. It is a very well-known work, often recognized more easily on sight than by name. Kandinsky mentions late Roman art very briefly and obscurely. Not enough, indeed, to warrant illustration, unless the connection considered was hugely important. The works and styles of notable artists are mentioned more prominently than the discussion on Eastern Roman art without any illustrations being included. In footnotes alone, 
Kandinsky writes of how the coloring of Byzantine halos set secular characters with golden ones apart from saintly ones whose nimbi were blue, and also how the posture of the figures surrounding the empress in the Raveno mosaic form a triangle in their overall composition, leaning into the central portrait of Theodora. Poignantly, when one considers the two directions, falling and rising, that sunset civilizations and dawning cultures must embody, Kandinsky says that the arm of Theodora's leftmost male attendant, holding up a curtain, that is, literally, parting a veil, is the visual equivalent of a fermata, a musical symbol indicating that a note should be held on to longer than the sheet music would otherwise call for. Sadler spills a bit more ink on this use of the mosaic illustration by analogizing the state of the art world in 1914 to that of the Eastern Roman Empire. The widely used Guggenheim edition of 1946, that proudly proclaimed to be translated by committee, does not include that introduction, conceptually orphaning the inclusion of the mosaic illustration. Sadler writes, Not since the time of the so-called Byzantines, not since the period of which Giotto and his school were the final splendid blossoming, has the symbolist ideal in art held general sway over the naturalist. Sadler found Kandinsky's work so groundbreaking that he had to peer 600 years back in time to the early phase of Spengler's so-called Faustian era to the paintings of Giotto, comparing the spiritual pulse of Expressionism to the rising culture forms of the late Middle Ages in Europe. Notably, Expressionism was new enough in the 19-teens that the label for Kandinsky's associated art movement does not occur once in the book. Going back six centuries further yet than Giotto, Sadler also connects the visual prominence of the spiritual over the material to the Eastern Romans, whose twilight civilization might be thought of as the last site of the Mediterranean's Apollonian system, or the first rise of an Eastern-influenced Magian system, depending on how you tilt the picture. Sadler certainly saw the West as being in a time of turbulent transition, that art did not merely reflect, but that he felt was destined to inflect and further in crucial ways. We owe the descriptive keywords of Faustian and Magian to Spengler, the prodigious amateur historian whose ideas Itten and others had studied during the Bauhaus's Weimar years. Spengler's accurate but profuse pessimism likely influenced his bleak take of modernist art 
in which he only saw signs of increased technical prowess and accelerating fashion cycles, all facets he associated to civilization in a very late, declining phase. In Concerning the Spiritual, we are presented with a striking, self-alert articulation of a new cultural pulse, a specific look at what Spengler might be forgiven for missing, the obscure and burgeoning process of an as-yet-unnamed world system, rising from the wreck of Western art. The spiritually active life, which Kandinsky says art belongs to in part, is a complicated but definite and easily definable movement forwards and upwards, on a path beset with obstacles and the risk of falling back to lower levels of awareness. This was written at a time when the bottoming-out epiphanies of the beats were still decades ahead in the future. Kandinsky uses what he calls the simile of the spiritual triangle to diagram and visualize this progress of spirit through historical experience. He admits that the simile of the triangle cannot be said to express every aspect of the spiritual life, but he uses it as a compelling general representation. An acute triangle that may have later served as an incentive to Abraham Maslow is presented with its upward point spanning a single inspired individual. It is thus implied, but not explicitly explored, that there are many spiritual triangles of varying magnitude and influence that overlap and form larger structures like recursive fractals in the play of history. The base regions of the triangle are occupied by those with the lowest form of spiritual awareness, in this case, atheists and logical positivists. They are considered to be cut off from spirit by adherence to dogma. Above are all sorts of gradations between the genius and the uninspired, and a single person can certainly go from being merely a genius to uninspired several times in a lifetime. Placing the atheists near the lower part of the triangle parallels Nietzsche, whom he later mentions by name. Kandinsky argues, following from the observation that God is dead, that one does not conclude from it there is no spiritual, but, on the contrary, that a new sense of spirit must be discovered. All the established churches and old religions Kandinsky considers to be atheistic, because they are the artifacts of an old inspiration which is no longer in actively prophetic connection with the divine. Thus, relative position in the triangle is crucial. A grandfather's liberating prophet can also be the author 
of his grandchildren's restrictive dogma. We feel history shows that this ambivalent inheritance of legacy is as true in architecture as it is in religion. The aesthetic reactionaries of the 19th century, Ruskin and Morris among them, sought to revive past styles and forms. Radicals like Sullivan, Wright, and most of European modernism called for a total and clean break with past legacy, going so far as to end the study of architectural history in some academies. More conservative, progressive figures, such as Loos and Alexander, wished to maintain what was good about the past while discarding restrictive or harmful elements, no matter what period they came from. So history continually presents our current actions with the challenge of deciding what path really is their necessary one. There is never a single, reachable, absolute apex to the triangle, and motion is continuous. If such an absolute existed, it would be the very terminus of history. Kandinsky states that the inspired individuals in the upper reaches of the triangle are striving for two things, to rise ever higher, and to feed creative output as new spirit to those lower. Those so greatly inspired cannot feed upon the food they prepare for others, as it will poisonously take them lower, and they need to strive for the spirit that is yet beyond anything that they themselves have yet perceived. Kandinsky imagines the mechanism of this inspiration coming to someone as a manner of prophetic reception, again with heavy Zarathustran flavors. The invisible Moses descends from the mountain and sees the dance round the golden calf, but he brings with him fresh stores of wisdom to man. He writes that a lone artist is the first to hear this voice. What art historian Alois Riegel might have identified as the Kunstwollen, or the spiritual will of the art. This invisible prophet speaks in words that are inaudible to the crowd. Almost unknowingly, the artist follows the call. Within the question of how to execute what is received in this inspiration lies what the painter calls a hidden seed of renaissance. Examining the process of creating art, the applied action of this triangle upon the material world, Kandinsky had distinguished the what of art from its how. He uses the what to mean at first, and most simply, the art object but ultimately and perfectly the mysterious substance of inspirationally driven artistic process that he prominently credits Gauguin with, and the impulse of which is fulfilled in the incarnation of inspired art. As with Cezanne and Picasso, the what 
is distinct from the how of syntactically driven art production, though the how, whether more or less technically developed, must be present in all artworks. The upcoming quote on this how and what is written in a rather tangled rhetoric that is atypical of the rest of the book, a sign that the author was himself intently working on the threads of a very new thought. Applying the benefit of hindsight, keeping our definition of his quote-encapsulated terms how and why will help. Also, if your podcast app or phone's shortcut menu has two tiny 15-second forward and backward jump buttons in it, a gesture of four rapid taps on the 15-back button should get the section to repeat for you rather reliably for as long as you'd like to. Kandinsky describes how the invisible prophet whispers in the artist's ear with these words. First, by the artist is heard his voice, the voice that is inaudible to the crowd. Almost unknowingly, the artist follows the call. Already in that very question, how, lies a hidden seed of renaissance. For when this how remains without any fruitful answer, there is always a possibility that the same something, which we call personality today, may be able to see in the objects about it not only what is purely material, but also something less solid, something less bodily than was seen in the period of realism, when the universal aim was to reproduce anything as it really is, and without fantastic imagination. He goes on to argue that if the emotional power of the artist can overwhelm the necessary obstacle of the how, that artist can, in a sense, pass that gauntlet of profession or education. If that threshold is attained, the what of art will no longer be just a physical artifact from the objective world, but the internal truth of art, the soul without which the body, i.e. the how, can never be healthy, whether in an individual or in a whole people. Kandinsky is setting forth a view of art in which its purpose is to shine light into darkness. This is attained when the objective, material work of art is transcendently connected to the spiritual by and through the artist, who, being inspired, acts as a sort of conduit who suffuses what would otherwise be only technical ability with transcendent truth. As we have seen in episodes 11 and 12, the idea that one might presume to make such a lofty claim for meaning in art would be viciously lambasted by the Dadaists. Decades later, it would be disassembled by the deconstructivists, after being philosophically defended by Merleau-Ponty. But back in 1911, 
Kandinsky's battle cry for transcendence, ringing out against the apparent solipsism of art for art's sake, was a clarion call for the synthesis of material and spirit, carried within what many hoped was emerging as a culture set to replace the fade of Western civilization. In a footnote to the section on the how, Kandinsky remarks further, Is everything material? Or is everything spiritual? Can the distinctions we make between matter and spirit be nothing but relative modifications of one or the other? Thought which, although a product of the spirit, can be defined with positive science, is matter, but of fine and not coarse substance. Is whatever cannot be touched with the hand spiritual? The discussion lies beyond the scope of this little book. Unsaid here, but necessarily following, is that strict monism, the opposite of dualism, is the complete identity of matter and spirit. This creates a tautology. Matter equals spirit. Therefore, any distinction between the two would have no meaning. Since this distinction clearly does carry meaning, and meaning that the painter acknowledges, it is fair to say that what we have here is not a strict equivalence, but rather something resembling proportional equivalence, that is, the kind of transformative relationship like ice and water, or particles and waves, that balanced equations are good at representing. Kandinsky is struggling to articulate a reformulation of dualism that has only in recent years become somewhat more clear. Being closer to the apex of the spiritual triangle means that clear words often fail you as the concepts are so alien to experience. The oracle speaks in tongues, and the priestly aspects scramble to interpret. He sensibly chooses not to weigh down his book by wading into psychophysic parallelist dualism. We'll wait to take requests before broadcasting our content on that one. It is indeed one of the thorniest, most unremitting controversies in all of philosophy. Kandinsky sets, within his sidelong comment, a very important sign that he is wrestling with how to properly articulate the matter-spirit duality, and by extension, dualism itself. He promptly and curtly emphasizes that all that matters here is that the boundaries drawn should not be too definite which would be in alignment with our claim for the appropriateness of a proportional or non-bivalent metaphysical equivalence of matter and spirit. But let us take things one step further now. Let's remove the meta from the physical and see what the contemporary physicists 
were up to at the time. Though we are hardly making the argument that Kandinsky points to a direct connection with Einstein, an implicit link in the artist's mind is plausible, and a commonality of historic trends is definite and visible. The conceptual links are clearly present, and the key use of the word relative is a tantalizing coincidence. In either case, it is noteworthy that when Concerning the Spiritual in Art was published in 1911, the great reconfiguration of the old absolutes of Newtonian physics that in our day are still scientifically and culturally incomplete were already underway in professional and public awareness. On the other hand, metaphysical exploration of the unity of matter and energy, that is, of a unified spirit and matter dualism, has been a scientific bete noire for centuries. Newton himself had speculated in Query 30 of his optics that light and matter might be cross-convertible. However, applied physics, associated consequences in engineering, and the profitable technological advances derived from them benefited greatly, and for several centuries, from the Cartesian and Kantian analytic modes of solving problems by first making a division and then running isolated experiments. The Bauhaus itself, with its stress on combining art and craft education, was struggling for synthesis in the wake of this exhausted process of analysis by dissection. It fully embraced the technological legacy of the analytic, while simultaneously striving for the kind of unifying breakthroughs that contemporary physics also happened to be making. It is very likely that Kandinsky's philosophical fame contributed to Grofius's wishes for him to teach at the Bauhaus. The painter's stirring ideas on artistic production and his passion for unifying the technical how and the inspirational what must have made him seem like a natural addition, in retrospect even an inevitable one, to the design school that so wanted to see a union of art and the applied sciences. It was in early 20th century science, as with the Vandevelde Gauguin Kandinsky triad of transcendent and semantic purpose for the arts, that a somewhat Hegelian, synthetic mode, advancing understanding by combining concepts, became prominent in physics once again, having last been seen with Copernicus and Newton. The union between matter and energy, once thought to lay past the epistemic frontier of certain knowledge, was slowly brought closer to the opportunity of empirical investigation. In other words, Kandinsky's triangle of the spirit is to the various material products of artistic inspiration 
what E equals mc squared is to physics. Einstein's so-called Annus Mirabilis papers of 1905 covered the topics of Brownian motion, the photoelectric effect, special relativity, and what is most relevant here, the mass-energy equivalence, which is, through a great irony of reverse comprehensibility, most commonly unknown to the public as E equals mc squared. Einstein's early published work on the co-determinate identity of matter and energy was central to earning him the Nobel Prize and additional popular acclaim in 1921. Though Kandinsky published in 1911, his book discusses the dynamics of scientific innovation, mentioning advances in the sciences as facts, being established which the science of yesterday dubbed swindles. While this statement could readily be taken to Bohr, Einstein, and Rutherford, our mystic painter is alluding to the publications of people like Camille Flammarion, who argued for the presence of the spiritual in the physical, or to the criminological research on physical stigmata of Cesare Lombroso. Kandinsky's actual sources were popular at the time, but they are not remotely well-regarded a century later. He does not appear to be aware of Einstein, though the physicist's connection to what he called the Old One, a mysterious inspirational force that seemingly supplied him with the knowledge for his breakthroughs, would have suited Kandinsky's point concerning new science far better. He did, however, call his chapter discussing science spiritual revolution, and it argues precisely for the existence of the symptom he is exhibiting. In the wake of a new spiritual force, it is difficult to accurately describe it. The ability to do so comes with the distancing effects of time. Kandinsky claims that, in a revolutionary era such as his, professional men of learning can remember the time when facts now recognized by the academies as firmly established were scorned by those same academies. This formulation fits very neatly within the structure of scientific revolutions that Thomas Kuhn would eventually write about, wherein disruptive new discoveries induce paradigm shifts. Kandinsky antedates Kuhn by a stretch, but he is actually arguing that science and art share similar revolutionary patterns. Because inspiration begins with one person, at first inside the mind, without commensurate words, and only later, and with effort seeping outward, that which belongs to the spirit of the future can only be realized in feeling, and to this feeling the talent of the artist is the only road. Theory is the lamp which sheds light on the petrified ideas of yesterday and of the more distant past. 
Einstein famously remarked that imagination is more important than knowledge. In science and art alike, the role of inspiration and creativity is widely lauded, and if we take seriously the proposition that imagination supersedes knowledge, as Kandinsky himself did when he argued that feeling alone must be the earliest instrument for the sounding of new spirit, an intuitive approach to artistic sentiment, or what Kandinsky calls Stimmung, should proceed naturally in dialogue with a framework for eventual technical and scientific application by way of a reliable, transmissible technique to consistently improve the articulation of spiritual expressions. Kandinsky was very concerned with the opportunity to apply techniques across disciplines. He noted, however, that this borrowing of method by one art from another can only be truly successful when the application of the borrowed methods is not superficial, but fundamental. The artist must not forget that in him lies the power of true application of every method, but that that power must be developed. He believed that there were unifying principles under all design and art, and that the more fundamental they became, the more useful they would be. Inspiration unaided by method would be simply insufficient. An analogous process was present in the example of Konstantin Stanislavsky's method-acting breakthroughs for the Moscow Art Theater. Kandinsky indeed remarks that the imagination of the spectator plays in the modern theater and especially in that of Russia, an important part. And this is a notable element in the transition from the material to the spiritual in the theater of the future. Nearly every dramatic actor in Hollywood and theater today uses such method-acting tools or a variant of them. This type of systematic framework applied to creative activity, served as a general foundation for a methodology of creative expression that Kandinsky would advance at the Bauhaus, and that would continue in the various strands of organic or vitalist architecture to emerge throughout the 20th century. Lampe and Roberts's retrospective on Kandinsky quotes Marcel Duchamp as saying that concerning the spiritual was in all the shops, and apparently a very popular book. If Kandinsky's widely known metaphysics had been consciously linked by the artist to contemporary breakthroughs in physics, that would be astounding. But if the opposite were true, and the artist was not aware of any connection to Einstein, then that is an even more striking example of grand historical trends and forces acting upon notable individuals. In either case, it suggests that art and ideas about its creation sympathetically anticipated 
how new forms of seeing in science would produce the century's most earth-shaking discoveries. If one is far enough convinced by Kandinsky's words and by the power of art to show that some works have an impactful spiritual meaning, then it is reasonable to venture, as some late 20th century architects have, that advances in architecture or art could point the way to new breakthroughs in physics. But that discussion will need to come at the end of a long and bloody 20th century, in which the entanglements between the technical and the spiritual would be expressed in vastly creative and destructive ways. To the eyes of many an observer, the Bauhaus was exclusively a fountain of sterility, from the machine ethos that had, in no small measure, fueled two world wars. On June 22, 2004, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, one of the last living beat poets, began an entry in his Berlin travel journal by writing, Passed by the Bauhaus Museum, and saw enshrined there the birthplace of soulless architecture, and then the new Jewish Museum, built by the same architect who won one competition for the World Trade Center Memorial in Manhattan. It is appropriate that he so contrasted artifacts in the Bauhaus archive with the deconstructivist work of Daniel Liebeskind. But was he correct to characterize the output of the Bauhaus as soulless? If so, Professor Kandinsky's project turned out to be a failure. We might, in fact, do well to confront the very real, sterile aspects of the Bauhaus's legacy by taking Kandinsky's early philosophy in earnest. What the Academy currently scorns may well be nonsense. Or, we may be on the brink of a shift in how we understand both art and architecture. The dross of modernism may hold clues to the architectures of our present and possible futures. Join us as we continue to examine Kandinsky's attempts to take his theory to the classroom and the art world, next on Lapsus Lima.